0: and welcome back or welcome to the on coaching podcast i'm steve magnus and joined as always by my good friend colleague fellow coach partner in crime jonathan marcus john what is going on my man
1: clock's ticking man it's It's time to give the people what they want
0: all right (laughs) you know it we're coming at you with another good episode if you haven't yet check out the running scholar program we are clicking away we have just introduced a new course that we're going down i just released the uh, the middle distance extravaganza to get you ready for track season that's coming around the corner as we wrap up cross country check that out get the courses get the perks be part of the clubhouse where, you know what, every day, John, I'm just I'm just going through reading and I'm like, oh, you know what, this is interesting. And then instead of just sharing it with you or Danny Mackey or some of my other friends, I'm like, this goes in the clubhouse. Other coaches, take advantage. Here's some cool stuff I just put in today. What was it called? A research study that I found that is called... The Bouncing Behavior of Sub-4-Minute Milers. Which they looked at the biomechanics of a bunch of sub-4-minute milers and broke it all down in a nice little study. So, if you want to nerd out, come join us in the clubhouse. I mean, that's a the cool
1: thing about the clubhouse there's so many different rooms right and it's been fun to see like questions and answers where coaches have questions like coaches like hey i got a athlete dealing with shin splints or plantar fasciitis does anyone have any recommendations and other peers coming in and giving a really good sound advice about a direction to take to address very common issues that pop up and because Sometimes that's what we need, right? It's just a little direction to, um, and nudge to get us on the right path to help either bounce back from a setback or start to think about something more clearly. And It's amazing to see the brilliance of the current members and also to the flood of new members coming in and joining the conversation. It is the most awesome thing ever. You don't want to miss out if you only join the Scholar Program for access to the clubhouse is well worth less than a dollar a day we ask. And by golly, it's just going to compound. It's great.
0: All right. Get on board. So jumping into this week's episode, what are we talking about? The peak performance checklist. With the man Everything who wrote, wrote the need- book
1: on peak performance in the building.
0: <laughs> All right. That guy. Everything you need to be ready for the big day. So we're going to talk about how to take some of these ideas on performance and dive into prepping you for the big race the big performance the big competition so that you're rocking and rolling and ready to go
1: and i like checklists because they're very practical we talk a lot on this podcast about uh you know different theoretical things at time and we go in the weeds in my new show which is awesome but at the same time, we need practical solutions to be able to reference very quickly and rapidly to make sure or ensure and remind ourselves and our athletes we work with that they're good to go and ready to go on the big day or not, and temper expectations appropriately based off this practical uh, toolkit we have.
0: Exactly. So, let's, let's, we're just going to jump into things and start our checklist. And as usual, John, we're going to, kind of fly off the cuff here and just throw out what I think is really important. And I'm going to start with one and we'll kind of go all over the place a little bit, but I'm going to start with one that I think when we think ready for the big day, we often think of the mental stuff, which we'll get into, you know, uh, the making sure you're physically primed, which we'll get into. But I think getting ready for the big day, one of the best things that you can do is sleep. Mm. Because sleep is what allows you to perform. It allows you to, for your body to absorb everything you've done, to recover, to repair, to rejuvenate, to get everything ready to go. And I think If you can nail your sleep going into especially going into the big day into going into the big race, and it's not so much the night before where you might have some nerves, but it's having some good sleep recovery in that week or so leading up into it, that really kind of frees you up and gets your body to what I would call like its top potential of like, hey, we're restored, we're recovered, here we go let's get after it. I agree
1: 100%. I mean, sleep is the foundation of performance. And we know this from uh, the, the science is pretty clear on this, right? You, a lot of positive things happen in sleep, human growth hormones release, testosterone's release, cerebral spinal fluid is drained from your brain. You know, uh, all these things happen in the deepest uh, cycles of sleep. And if you don't have those available to you, you sabotage that, you kind of are this walking zombie, right? And this is where understanding the effects of alcohol, caffeine, uh, blue screen stimulation, and those time horizons is critical. Remember, caffeine has a half-life of about five to six hours, roughly, in most people. Alcohol, it takes uh, for one drink to be metabolized about, you know, five to eight hours in most people things compound when you have more than one drink of alcohol when you have uh when you have more caffeine right it's just think of it like a workout how easy is it for your body or your system to you know if you're a condition runner to do one times 100 at your 5k race pace and then move on it's not really that big of a stress right it'll interpret it it'll be fine but if you do all of a sudden um 10 times a k at 5k race pace with very shallow rest at a high density well that's going to have a more severe impact on your system right it's the same thing with uh, what we ingest and then what the environment we um, subject ourselves to before we sleep and throughout the day this is why i advocate for day drinking <laughs> if you're going to drink drink early like because you want it's about a metabolism horizon it's not about any social norms the worst thing you can do is have any kind of alcohol within about four to six hours before you go to bed It is the worst thing because it makes it so you cannot get that deep sleep. And when you cannot get that, you can't get the uh, positive uh, hormone release. You can't get uh, that restorative feeling and you end up um, getting this Fake sleep, as they call it, where you don't go into the deepest stages of the sleep cycle, and you stay very shallow. So you're sedated, and you kind of pass out, but it's not sleep at all. And then your body is forced to quote-unquote play catch-up or be behind the eight ball, you know, um, for a, a little bit afterwards. And it can be a day to a week, depending on the chronic severity of it. And if you have alcohol every night. As part of your like go to bed routine, you're probably chronically underslept and is one reason why you might not be recovering as well from workouts. You have decision fatigue or you might not have um, the, the power and the motivation and the stamina that you would like when you are doing your athletic activity.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you you kind of went into the science there because I think it's important. And I think a lot of people say, like, oh yeah, sleep's great. Blah, blah, blah. Do this. But it really does give us that foundation, you know? And it really does clear, it's like the uh the uh the reset button for your your brain, mind, and body, right? Where you just flush <laughs> out bad stuff. You talked about cerebral spinal fluid. And, you know, make sure you're rearing and ready to go. Another thing it does as well is it sets your pattern up, right? Your, your body works on these nice circadian rhythms that are used to, like, getting sleep, which is tied towards what you mentioned, the hormone release, growth hormone, testosterone. And then you wake up. And what happens when you wake up, depending when you wake up, you get that surge of cortisol that is like the wake up thing. Right. Which then dictates when other hormones will occur later on, like, you know, melatonin release and all this stuff, which ties into, okay, we're going down this rabbit hole of of circadian rhythms to a degree, but like which ties into how you're ready to perform. You know? And like, are you ready to perform at 8 a.m. in the morning for cross-country meet? Depends to a large degree on like your Uh, you know, to your patterning. And if, if you're ready to, if your body is awake, ready and, and raring to go or not, which again, has a lot to do with our sleep cycle. So we could go down a bunch of rabbit holes on that, but I think it's important is like, okay, what sets the stage to perform this sleep gives you this foundation, puts you on the right kind of cycle to do so, to be ready to go on race day And it's not, hey, I'm going to do this the day before. It's establishing that habit and that pattern. And I think that is, if we're saying peak performance checklist, sleep. Check it off, man. Get it done. I will add to the checklist
1: stability. And this is multifaceted. So stability, not only physically, um, but also mentally, emotionally, environmentally, and also socially. So what do I mean by that? So you have to be stable and have a stable routine and a stable environment to be able to get routine sleep, right? If there's a lot of variance about when you go to sleep because of, you know, home life, work life, demands, oh, I just, you know, decide on an impulse to watch all three Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit all night and do a marathon I didn't get to bed till you know, 4am and I have to be up at 7am and you just, you sporadically just give into those impulses. And we know, you know, when you have lack of sleep, you're more likely to give into impulses again, compounding interest here. Um, without that stability, it's pretty darn near impossible to get a predictable, systematic and progressive adaptation response from any type of stimulus stressor, uh, that you regularly encounter. And that's the name of the game not only for athletes, but pretty much for anyone in general, it is the core of Steve and Brad's peak performance book, the formula stress, you know, rest equals growth, right? And if you don't have the rest, all that stress is going to do is not create growth, but decay. And without stability in your environment, You're not going to be able to perform at a peak, nor if you don't have stability socially. You have to be able to have people around you who are supporting you, who you trust, and also to the reciprocation effect. People that trust you and that you support, right? Not as they call vampires who are just narcissistic, selfish people trying to suck things away from you or um, being uh, very poverty attention because uh, you're focused on who has the most likes on Facebook or Instagram or all those corrosive social device media devices that can gamify you and distract you as well. So being around real people who you really know, who can call you by name and recognize you by name and vice versa, and that you have a high degree of stability and trust with like a team, really important. And then physically, right? Stability is the key prerequisite to be able to have good strength capacity, to build off that strength to speed and to build off that speed and strength to then um, prolong your ability to do an activity well, which we call stamina or endurance, right? And without that stability in how you function, whether whatever your sport may be, unilateral, bilateral um, you know type of uh, action, you're not going to be able, to get the most out of your training because you're gonna be dealing with little niggles or injuries or setbacks so laying that stability foundation is key and then mentally finally having the stable thoughts good thoughts powerful thoughts not corrosive distractive depressive uh, negative thoughts and being able to again leverage your social environment to talk about thoughts you may have that might be more harmful and detrimental than helpful and productive.
0: Oh man, John, you said so many things there that are really important. I love how you put it under stability um, because we could have brought, broken this out into a billion different things. We could have.
1: St- yes. I mean,
0: but stability kind of gives us, it kind of nails, nails it. So I'm going to talk about a few of the things that I, I think pull out there that are important to highlight is Stability to me, you talked about stability in relationships and doing real things with real people is such a key right now because of the world that we live in, because of the, the growth of social media, which has some good and a lot of bad. But what it does is it it pulls us away from being stable and pulls us more towards like uh, being contingent, right? Our values, our self-esteem, our sense of self is contingent on these like little fake status things of likes, follows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have stability in the real world with real people, such as on your team and have that security, what that does is, as we're talking about, it gives you the freedom to reach your performance, right? Because what happens when we don't have that security or that stability? We we play, we compete out of a place of fear. Because, oh man, what happens if I lose? What will it be like when I, you know, what kind of trash will I get on social media or the message boards or whatever, you know, external validity is coming your way versus if you know what matters is those around me, those I'm, you know, have friendships, deep connection relationships with, then, you know, good or bad, those people are going to have your back. And if you mess up, they're going to be there to support you and then be there to help you correct or fix what's going, you know, what went wrong. They're not going to be there to tear you down and like drop you and be like, oh, you know, Steve sucks now. Like, let's throw him to the way- wayside. And I think that stability or security and your relationships and those around you is central and key to being able to perform at the highest level and i i would we you know i talked about teammates but i ought also say around coaches too because coaches can get that 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 buy in or that belonging through fear but fear is very ephemeral and short-lived it it can often work for a little bit but what happens is it's fake right and eventually that's gonna break, and athletes are gonna see through that BS and then like be left without that stability and security. Whereas a coach who like actually truly cares about the well-being and future of this kid or this athlete is gonna be like the parent who is bought in obviously wants the best, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that stability and security in that relationships is absolutely vital to performance.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, as you're talking about that, it's also too, if you are not on solid ground with those who are closest to you or those you're doing activities with, that requires performance. That requires stepping above and beyond your current capacity, your current limits your Current thresholds, it's going to be really tough to, um, um, you know, make that leap when the lights go on and your name is called. And so, having I used to always with athletes, I remind them, um, you know, before a big performance, before something they've been preparing for a long time, like say, Hey, look, I got your back no matter what happens. I'm going to give you a hug. And, you know, whether you win, we lose, you fall down. You know, you almost win. You run a great time. You know, you lay a fat stinky egg. Like I relieve them of that um, um, insecurity about my reaction before the big day. And I go, no matter what, as long as you just give it everything you got, I, you know, I'm here for you even if you don't give it everything you got because of fear or anxiety or what have you, I'm still here for you. Like I'm a core part of your team. We're on this journey together and it's not, this is just one stop on the road. It's not the end of the road or the end of the line. I think sometimes we view races or big performance days, um, whatever they may be as like, this is it. It's the end all be all. It's this cumulative final event. And it can be for that cycle of preparation. But remember, cycles of preparation are seasonal, right? They're predictable. They ebb and flow like the season. So it's just one stop. And when you remind someone of that on uh, before going into a big performance, you give them that permission to go and explore and take risks. Because without that, no one's going to risk and on you know the big day you have to take some calculated risks to do something you've never done before but have that stability security and sense of support to be able to make those risks a reality
0: yes i i think i think framing it in terms of risks is important because it's it's almost comes down to it's it's pretty simple it's like are you allowing them and giving them the freedom to play to win the game or are you putting them in a mindset that is fear based where they're playing not to lose and our goal is always to like give them the freedom to take you know appropriate calculated risks to see to explore their their form to explore their potential and it really is that like explorer's mindset that you're you're trying to do and a large part of that does come down to that security, that stability, that sense of like belonging and and all of those things. Um I think another part of that stability and security as well is that you mentioned in there is like we've talked about relationships and team, but it's also in like security in your environment in And what you're trying to do, and what I mean by your environment is like your routine, your like expectations around things you know your who's in your corner in terms of parents and teachers and all that stuff like having the right environment around you is 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 vital to uh performing
1: mm-hmm And that stability can be manufactured in very simple ways. The older I get, the more I like uniforms and just having a uniform that you kind of wear every day. So like for me, it's, it's pretty simple, right? During the um, kind of winter ish months or when it's gray in Portland, I wear a lot of gray. And then during the spring months when it's kind of cold, but sunny, but not really warm, I wear a lot of black. And then I follow, you know, the sage wisdom of don't wear white before, Um, Memorial Day and after Labor Day, so I wear white in the summer, right? It just takes decision, uh, it's one less decision fatigue, right? When I was coaching um, in the collegiate level, we would have a day where it would be white shirt day, team team color, main color day, black day, and then team uh, secondary color day. And we just cycle through those four days and then you could um, wear whatever you want on, you know, Friday, you know, like whatever, athlete's choice day. But it just made it so like we all felt a part of something and we all had succinctness and unity and stability. And if someone didn't wear the right color on the right day, you didn't like chew them out. You just said, hey, what's up? You know, just reminding them like it's not a compliance thing. It's more of a stabilizing thing. And just to take one less decision out of it. And I always, um, you know, t- tried to tie thematically certain types of work days to those colors. So if someone knew they're putting on the black, um, you know, uh, t-shirt or top that, that was like, all right, you know, it was a power speed power type day, or they're putting on like the white top, it was a restorative day. And so again, it's just subtle ways to manufacture predictability and stability in the environment. Because as we've seen more now than ever, especially with the pandemic, uh, related interruptions, lack of certainty lack of stability is very destabilizing and can cause people to go in a variety of different directions and create personal crisis. I don't know if you've seen this, Steve, but I've seen a lot of crisis, personal and then you know a little bit more social, global in the last year and a half than I have seen before. Why? Because a lot of us got in very destabilized situation and didn't know how to cope and decided some people very unhealthy directions to go that might not be so virtuous and other people, you know, a little bit more virtuous and can say, oh, hey, came out the pandemic stronger and better. But that takes a lot of pre-strength going in to be able to cope in that manner.
0: You know, um, yes, I've seen seen similar. And I think it's a large part due to the fact that the human brain is essentially a uncertainty-reducing machine. Like, it hates uncertainty, and we when we have it, it looks for answers to find closure, right? And what unfortunately happens is we grasp onto what I'll call the, uh, the candy version, right? The sweets version of closure, instead of taking the time, finding the vegetables or healthy version of closure. And I think that's what you're seeing a lot right now, especially coming off of or still being in a pandemic, which, you know, brought a lot of uncertainty to a lot of people because it took people out of their routines and out of their normal expectations. And they couldn't easily predict what was going to happen and where they were going to be in the future in the next week month year whatever have you and that's where that uncertainty comes from our brains like to predict what's going on or what's going to happen right all of the the stress response that we feel when we're in a you know in a challenging state where does that come from that's a prediction that's the brain being like all those nerves and anxiety you feel pre-race. That is your brain saying, you know what, Steve's got a race in an hour or thirty minutes or fifteen minutes. Um, we think he needs some he need, needs some hormones to get ready, like to lose to get the energy, you know, release the energy, get everything right, get our activation up, so you feel the stress response. It's the brain predicting what's what's going to happen. Right, And I think in a situation like this where we have more uncertainty, less predictability, you get crazy different responses because you don't know what's coming. So tying this to performance, what does this mean? It means setting, if we're going to run a race one of the keys, and this ties to stability as well, is having the appropriate expectations, seeing things as a challenge instead of a threat, understanding what you are capable of, right? Being clear on what you think you're capable of, what that range is, and then having the appropriate race plan or strategy To execute that. Okay. Because those expectations, that is what our brain is going to use to predict things. It's going to, and if we can make that stable where it knows, hey, you know what? I'm going to need a stress response, but I'm going to make it A, B, and C and have a little less cortisol, a little more testosterone because I think this works versus. You know what? We got this this really tough race in front of me, and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I'm capable of. I don't know what what's going to occur. This could I could bomb and blow up, and then my coach, parent, friends are going to hate me, think I'm a failure, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if that's the if that uncertainty is there, then our brain will say, you know what? We don't know what's going to happen, so we're going to release like a mother of a, a stress response so that. Worst comes to worst, we'll go into protective mode and make sure no no harm and damage occurs instead of the challenge and see if we can succeed mode. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean it's when you when you sit down and just think about it, it's just amazing how much of what we've talked about initially is not even like the physical, right? It's just our perception and taking care of your, you know, people call it mental health. <laughs>
0: Yep. It it you know it, it it it's funny. It's it's like so much of performance we've we talk about, you know, the training and all this stuff, and that matters too, but it's really you know, you gotta have the foundation, you know, you gotta have the stability, as you said, the security, the relationships that are stable, the belonging, the you know to degree predictability, like enable to be able to perform. And I think we often miss that. Um, and instead focus on, Oh, if we do this training and we get fit enough, like we'll be ready to go. And yes, that plays a role, but the higher and higher you go in performance, the more the other stuff comes in, right? Because the stakes feel higher, right? In my neighborhood fun run if i lose i'm not thinking about man i let down the team or i let down my coach or my parents are going to be pissed off or whatever have you right as we amp up the expectations and all of that stuff all of that comes into play right and the more stable secure we feel, we experience, the better off we're going to be able to navigate and handle that so that we're in an appropriate, positive place to be able to perform.
1: Yeah, and as a leader or as a coach, I think when I was a younger um, coach just starting out, I thought it was so much about the tactics, right? What are we doing? And then I evolved to like, oh, it's a strategy. Let's think globally about how, like what we do, when we do it, and why we do it from a physical preparation standpoint kind of sequences into itself to create this peak. And now I understand it is more environmental, more nurture. How are we setting up the team, the dialogue, the conversations, the day-to-day rhythms, the culture, if you will, Um, And how am I as a leader impacting that for better or ill? And that I think is day one. The first thing any coach needs to uh, address and think critically and deeply about is what's the culture I'm setting up? How am I personally going to keep tabs on my behavior and my deeds and words and presentation of who I am to reaffirm or discredit this culture that I want to set up. And that's the key, right? Is being purposeful and thoughtful and knowing when you are on and on is anytime you're interacting with an athlete and interacting with a stakeholder and even to social media nowadays, anytime you are seen in any way physically or digitally as a coach, you are sending a message, whether you are aware of it or not, that is either enforcing or eroding kind of the team behavior and culture and, uh, values and priorities set.
0: Yes, I think. (laughs) So, okay. If we're talking about performance, we talked about stability and I think you nailed at the end of that one of the other keys to performance, which is the values part. Mm -hmm. Like setting Values, understanding, what matters, like, that is key and central to performance. And we're not talking like, oh, here are our company values, and let's put these slogans on the wall and say that, <laughs> like, they matter. Or put them no, on no, no.
1: a t-shirt. Yeah, yippee-skippee. Yeah,
0: no, no, this is... This is what do we stand for? What is our team identity? Our self identity? Like what matters? What are our priorities? What what in this decision matrix? Right?
1: It's the decision matrix. It's basically your your map, your compass.
0: Exactly, like it's that guiding north star that tells you like whether you're on the right track or wrong track. So, getting really clear on what those values are. Both as a team and individual is is central to performance, and it's something that I think we often kind of you know give a little nod or a wink to, but we don't take the time to understand. And I think it's also like when you're dealing with a bunch of individuals on a team, it's understanding that people are going to have different values that they bring to the table, and that's okay. What you're trying to do is get clear on on their why. Like, why are they part of this? What's the purpose in, in uh, pursuing this very difficult sport? Like, if you can get clear on the meaning, the values, the purpose, then that, honestly, it reduces the decision-making, as you said, and that decision-making fatigue that often occurs because you can just ask, like, is this... You know, reflecting or in alignment with my values. And if it is, great. Don't have to think about it. If it's not, well, then that sends the alarm bell.
1: And the key is just simplifying that and making it very quick and binary to assess, especially in confusing or trying situations, right? Where you could have the oppor- opportunity to do this, and it might actually, in the short term, um, lend to your benefit or your team's benefit, but in the long term, might instill a a culture and habits that are not the, um, you know, the most virtuous and effective. And I'll give a quick example of, um, you know, a friend of mine, he was a football player in high school, and he was playing against a very scrappy team, a kind of a dirty team, right? And so he decided to stick up for himself and fight back. And there were a lot of flags. Um, and penalties that game in this football game in high school and you know he had several which was very uncustomary to him because he was in his mind just kind of sticking up for himself but playing equally or a little bit more dirty than the competition um, incited or invoked him to play and his team ended up winning the game very close game very exciting but on the ride home it was like they you know lost a grandmother all of a sudden you know um to a heart attack in the middle of the night like you know it was a very solemn car ride he couldn't understand why like the the team won like you know they uh, improved their ranking in the um, conference and you know finally his mother turned around looked at him and goes i'm very disappointed in how you played today because that's not who we are and you know that was it And point taken from there on, he never allowed himself to be invoked and um, leveled down and, you know, play dirty or reflect that if the other team was trying to um, incite him and throw him off course. And it gave him a sense of stability. And it gave him a sense of direction and clear yes, no. And so he played the game the right way, right? And, you know, he ended up becoming um, an NFL football player because of it, because he didn't just play the game in a way that um, got the immediate uh, reward of the victory by any means necessary. He did it the right way and was very concerned about being purpose-driven and process-driven. And it resulted in him being able to be a professional for a little while, which was phenomenal.
0: Oh, that's such a cool story. Yeah. Such a cool and impacting and powerful story. And I think, you know, you look at it, that that's kind of what it's all about, is like centering on what actually matters. Mm-hmm. And I call, that, the t- I call that
1: I call that playing to win, right? And I think this is another key checklist thing is for peak performance, is playing to win. But the hard part is, and the irony is a lot of people play to win, but they're actually not playing to win the right way. And so what does that mean? Like you said, play to win, not, um, you know, play to not lose. The, the thing about being purpose and process driven is playing to win is actually can look like playing not to lose. And what that means is not losing things that are on your, under your control, not losing your composure, not losing your focus, not losing um, your purpose, not losing that clear sense of, execution of the little things, the fundamentals, the process, right? And understanding this is what trust the process means is if you stay an uh, evangelical to those key um, controllables that you and your coach and team decided you have power over and can impact, you can actually then get further and more successfully down the course, down the um, the game, so to speak, or be met with those trying situations and come out successful because you weren't focused on greed or accumulating or winning or getting it, which is very difficult to do. So like a lot of times, right, I hear runners before a big marathon be like, I want to win. Well, yeah, so does everyone else who like, you know, is a professional, worked hard, trained hard and did all this. And that's great to say, kiddo. But what's the process? What's the strategy? What are the tactics? What's, how are you driven to, and identify winning? Versus playing not to lose, as Steve identified, is a fear-based um, uh, approach. And when you say, I want to win, well, now you just create all this fear are surrounded by anything that doesn't give you immediate feedback during your game or during your race that um, is demonstrating that you're um, winning right So all of a sudden you say I want to win and my plan to win is to run five minute mile pace for 26 miles. Great. And now all of a sudden you know mile f- 12 you run a 515. Oh, now I'm afraid because like my was my plan was to win this way and it's like no, that playing to win method is actually playing to lose. And the playing to win method I'm talking about is understanding what's in your control, that you cannot lose composure or control over. So my thoughts, my rhythm, my reactions, um, my um, tactics for, you know, my um, if-then strategies. If this happens, then I'm going to do that. That is the key in the harder work, but the more impactful and empowering work.
0: All right. I think you just made a brilliant point there. And this this is great, John. And I mean this sincerely. Playing to win, essentially... It doesn't mean actually winning, right? And and, and this is brilliant because I think people hear that and they say, oh, I'm going to play to win. Like, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to, you know, win or bust. Like, let's go. And what happens sometimes when you do that is when you have that in your mindset, you make yourself fragile. Because how many times have you seen it in a race? We can go from all the way, You know, high school JV all the way to Olympics, right? Where you see someone like, oh, I'm I'm going for the win. I'm doing this. And they're leading, they're leading, they're leading. And then the moment someone challenges and gets on their shoulder, right? Or pushes just a little bit past, they just start to crumble, right? They fall apart. And what's happening there is pretty simple. Is that person had no if-thens, no contingencies, no... You know, secondary goals or or no security or stability besides like, oh, I'm gonna win. It's like win or not. And they freak out when that plan looks like it's not maybe not going to predictably happen. And that's where I think it's so important to establish play to win means you are freeing yourself up, right? You're freeing yourself up away from like the fear. Of like, well, what if this happens? What if I can't do this? What if, you know, what if I lose? Like, am I a failure as a person? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're saying like, I'm going to like, you know, give the effort that I can and execute in this way and then have these these this ability to maximize my performance, my ability and where the chips fall the chips fall.
1: Yeah. And you see this like with very um, concrete examples, again, not to um, knock on uh, this runner in any way, shape or form, but it's the difference between a Ryan Hall career and a Kipchoge career. And Ryan has come out and said what got him excited was for time, right? For him running for a time, he would rather run an American record and finish fifth in a marathon, right? Then win the marathon in what he deemed a so-so time. And Kipchoge um, has always talked about just delivering his personal best, a beautiful race for him. And as he ascended and got better and better and better, a personal best for him was aligned with world records, which is pretty exciting, but he stayed focused and committed to that process playing to win. I can control me, I can control trying to do my best on the day. And, you know, versus you saw a lot in Ryan's type of racing, he would be on pace. Like when you set the American half record in the half marathon, uh, in Houston and just light it all up. Right. But then weeks later, couldn't even run that pace um for 15k right uh because this is what happened that year and you know in in jacksonville at the us 15k championships versus like someone like a meb kafletsky is a good example if people remember he was always kind of process driven himself and running each race to his best based on the conditions of their race sometimes he got a calf strain and finished 225 you know it, it, it wasn't a crisis moment it was like ah okay i gotta heal up moment and so when we Balance that uh, outlook. The moment you're off pace, right, you start to have this defeated mindset and hopeless mindset, and you drop out, right? Because like you go, what's the point? But when you have that kind of let's show up and see what happens attitude, you can have that Des Linden win the Boston Marathon or um, uh, the Japanese guy, you know, win that Boston Marathon, right? Those are that's amazing because they were able to say, hey. I'm going to um, you know, make the most out of this and play to win of this really uh, unpredictable situation versus some faster runners who might have dropped out of the Boston Marathon and then two weeks later run like 206 or something. That's great, but at the end of the day, it's to me, it's not the sustainable or peak performance approach because you've you got to control the controllables and understand what that means.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because – A time focus is often self-limiting. Yeah. You would know. Yes. (laughs) Yes. There's only so much you can do. And there's only so many times you can improve or even get close to that time. Right? And I think we get seduced into this because times we can compare against ourselves, which is a good thing, all that stuff. We can talk about PRs and and which is great, you know, for high school age kids. And those time time drops come quickly, you know. Every couple weeks, at worst in high school, you're setting some sort of PR, you know.
1: Or and, if you're in cross country and run a quote unquote fast course, aka short course.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can you can just you know it's it's easy, but those those. That becomes further and further away, harder and harder to do as we gain experience, get better in the sport. And that's where I think it's limiting, right? And we're not saying, I mean, Kipchoge has his moments where he goes for the time, right? We're not saying, don't like time isn't important, don't do this, blah, blah, blah. But having that be the be all, end all, or the main focus puts you in this self-limiting aspect because if the time in there you freak out and I'll tell you from experience you know I can tell you so many times where I'd come through 800 and like 159 too flat and be like all right I'm good but then if I came through 1200 at like 302 or 301 something I'd be like oh fuck. You know,
1: hey, like, and that's not just that, you. Like Andrew Weeding at the end of his career, that's when I asked him, I go, how do you know when to hang up the spikes? He goes, When I was just looking at the clock every lap and being like, Please don't be slow. Please don't be slow. He goes, I was done. Like, you know, that's, that's how he was measuring his performance was that one sole metric. And it was just corrosive. And he's a happy guy, but it ended up getting him out of the sport and putting him through a period of like, you know, a little depressed state afterwards because it was just. You know, so sad about it. And I was like, dude, don't, don't be. But again, easy to say, hard to do.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think that's why it's we're not saying don't ignore, you know, no, we're not saying ignore times or never try and run fast or what have you. But like having a mindset that allows you to sustain over the long term that is beyond that, I think, again, is central to this, allowing you to play to win over the long haul for performance.
1: Right, it's using the quantitative metrics as a vehicle to help enhance the process. And so you can have that common even pace strategies, but okay, you're going to run six minute miles, this whole cross country race. Well, what if there's hills, ups and downs, what have you, that might be unrealistic, right? Because it's just, it's kind of lazy, actually, because it's easier to average it out and just tell someone to do the exact same thing. But we know from the peak performance book, and also from everyone who is anyone who has talked about training is the best way to A mass training is to balance highs and lows, peaks and valleys, polarized approach, right? So if you want to run 60 miles a week or 70 miles a week, don't run 10 miles every day. Some days you're going to run 14 miles maybe and split up into two runs. Other days it might be three miles, what have you, right? If you're using volume as a quantitative metrics to achieve performance in training. Same thing with time be empower the athletes, you know, use time as a, a positive game. Hey, get, try to get faster every, um, interval 5k in the marathon a lap in you know for people starting out in the mile right or try to run a race like this where like okay your two fastest laps are going to be you know your first lap in the mile and your last lap in the mile and see what you got in the middle right and then use that to build bridges about how to actually successfully execute the task versus like you gotta run every split the same or else and that was where you get that fear and that you know that losing mentality versus that winner's mentality.
0: Exactly, you know, John. As I sit here, you know, we're talking about performance. So much of this is is making sure you don't fall down that that fear checklist yeah. or that fear side of, of the fear things. cycle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, I've been there before. You mentioned Andrew Weeding, but it it really is like that's what derails like performance the ability to perform up to your 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 potential all of those things and there's so many things as athletes and then also as coaches we can do to set athletes up so that they don't fall down that that fear side of the equation
1: yeah I mean I have a sticky note on my um, desk that says don't get angry and afraid don't do it because those are both you know f- um, flight responses right in the fight or fight, um, uh, binary reptilian brain choice um, symmetry we have, right? And so a lot of times we when we're we get afraid and we get angry. And anger, it can be valuable in the short term for immediate, okay, we gotta really defend our turf, you know, it's do or die, right? But the problem is as we know in the the modern world, we are in this constant fight or flight, do or die situation when it's really not, you know? And so we have all this excess cortisol um, streaming through us because of all these inputs. And for me, you know, one of the key ways that I really help athletes not get afraid or angry, and that's another part of my perform- peak performance checklist, is to go deep and narrow. And think of like, um, you know, Cal Newport's uh, book, Deep Work, right? So what I like to have athletes do before the big race or uh, an important performance. And what I do um, very seasonally or, you know, kind of almost I found it's like every five weeks is go dark on um, social media, go dark on websites, go just don't visit those things for a week period leading up to it. Right. And it's amazing when I go dark on, say, Twitter or, um, you know, posting content or what have you, or looking even online at news, quote unquote, for the um, the, the, news, the daily news cycle, how much more mental space frees up for me to tackle complex, um, you know, co- concepts, thoughts, tasks, projects, things. And it usually takes about three or four days of being dark for it to go to get this energy and rejuvenation to really focus on what matters, which is whether I have a project around the house, experimenting with some training, trying to develop a thesis for, you know, the next series of posts or podcasts or something. And I get so much done in that period. I go, man, this is great. Why am I always dark? Because, you know, like, like anyone else, I like the game of social media and the Internet. It's pretty fun and it's exciting. And it's adventurous, but we got to remember there's times to not be excited. Like, you know, as Yoda says in Star Wars, right? Excitement, adventure, a Jedi cares not for these things (laughs) because excitement can distract, right? And that's the hard part is, you know, if you think about movies, if you think about concerts, if you think about even events like uh, road races, track races, cross country races, they're really exciting. I love them. That's why. But in order to perform, in an exciting way you have to kind of conserve and harness and build up that reservoir to then be able to on that performance day have as much fuel in the tank to just let it all brilliantly burn um to maximize what you're capable of doing
0: i love it quoting yoda ultimate (laughs) ultimate performance there we go but you know do or not
1: do there's no try steve
0: yes i know there's (laughs) that that is the key no i think i i think that's a brilliant place um to wrap this one up because you know we can go down this checklist and look at mindsets and expectations and sleep which we brought in and stability and security and belonging and your environment and playing to win and Like dealing with uncertainty all those things are really, really important. But what it almost all comes down to is, is just that is like you're freeing yourself up to do the deep work. You know, you're moving the obstacles away, whether they be physical in your environment or mental or emotional in terms of like giving yourself the freedom to perform. And if you can free yourself up to perform at your best, then you know where you stand. You can see what you're capable of. And then you get clarity on what you need to do to get better, improve, and all of that stuff. And that's what it's about. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's chapter seven of your book, Peak Performance, right? It's uh, in order to be a maximus, you have to be a minimus first.
0: Man, you're quoting my book now.
1: I know. Hey.
0: There we go. I think this is peak, peak on coaching podcast here. We got we got John quoting my book. But no, that's very true. And you know who told us that? Mike Joyner. Yeah. Who is a world-class physician, physiologist, um, ran, I I believe like 220 in the marathon back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, who is the this the peak peak performer i know in terms of um you know being a minimalist to be a maximalist
1: yeah and i mean so there's i think three really good books i'll offer the audience here to dive a little bit more deeper into this um that kind of touch on everything we talked about obviously steven brad's peak performance book uh the other one is um the way we're working isn't working by tony schwartz which you know is this uh, forgotten uh, needs that energize great performance that's talks a lot about this stuff. And then also, will this make the boat go faster? When i have been a book, I've been, I reread that was um, um, given to me by Vern Gambetta or uh, suggested to me by Vern. And it just is a great, great book to demonstrate the kind of process of the process driven approach of achieving something you know, big and audacious and crazy uh, uh, goal, like winning Olympic gold medal in a team event, the, you know, eight person skull rolling event or what have you um, from a group that did not have uh, from where a lot of people thought a chance in hell to actually make that happen during that uh, late 1990s, early 2000 era. So those three books, if you read those, you will find th- Common themes, but also interesting insights and practical examples that you can apply to your situation, whether you're a coach, whether you're an athlete, or whether you are a leader of some sorts in your community or at home or what have you, uh, that will make performance and peak performance not something to wish and hope and pray and be superstitious about, but something that you can actually reliably have a process and confidence in replicating time and time again, no matter uh, the conditions of the environment you find yourself performing in.
0: Love it. Check out those books. As always, books, the key to learning just about anything. Um, Check them out. Give yourself the freedom to perform, and if you're interested in diving deeper on these subjects, don't forget check out the Running Scholar program. Be part of the clubhouse. You know, John and I throw these ideas out there in our clubhouse chat. So, and in our monthly um, monthly Zoom get-togethers, that we dive super deep on these topics. Whatever topic you wanted to, you want to understand. So, check it out. It's well worth it. We're trying to bring value, just like in this podcast. And thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, until next time, everybody.